Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today, it is my pleasure to introduce Angela Sylvain. Angela Sylvain is a self-proclaimed cheerful goth who writes horror fiction and poetry. Her debut novel, Frostbite, is available now, and her debut collection, The Dead Spot, Stories of Lost Girls, is forthcoming from Dark Matter, Inc., Her short fiction and poetry have appeared in or on over 40 anthologies, magazines, and podcasts, including Southwest Review, Apex Magazine, and the No Sleep Podcast. She lives in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains with her sweetheart and three creepy cats. You can find her online at AngelaSylvain.com. Angela, welcome to the show. Hi, so happy to be here. I've been really excited to talk to you, uh, not just because I really felt like meeting you at SoferCon was like a total highlight of the con for me, but also because Frostbite is such a fun book and I just really want to gush about it for a little bit. So That's awesome. I'm always up for someone gushing about something that I wrote. So sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, tell me a little bit about your journey as a writer, um, because 40 different publications, that's a lot. And then now we have this, which is your debut novel, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I think I probably started writing maybe just over 10, probably between 10 and 15 years ago. And I actually started writing novels. I went to some, we have some really good local writing conferences where I am in Colorado. And so I basically learned the craft from the very beginning. I was taking classes and just really learning novel structure and how to write dialogue and all those things. So my writing journey started with writing a couple of young adult novels that are now trunked, Uh, never went anywhere, but really helped (laughs) me develop as a writer. And then shortly kind of before COVID, I was getting a little burnt out on novels and I decided I wanted to really focus on short fiction. So I really buckled down and just did short stories only and dedicated myself to that for probably, you know, three to four years um, and saw some success and decided I was ready to maybe get back into novel writing, which can be a little more daunting. Um, So then I actually started, as many people do, Uh, I started the story as a short story that Frostbite is based on and it just grew and grew and became a novella and eventually became a novel. So um, sometimes the story is kind of too big and that's what happened there. So that's, that's how I got where I am today. I love it. So Frostbite is, uh, let, let me ask you, you know, what is Frostbite for those that aren't aware of this book yet? Well, First off, I clearly was trying to mash as many genres into one book as I could. So this is a 90s LGBTQ plus sci-fi horror comedy, <laughs> which I would say is kind of like um, like a Slither or Gremlins meets Fargo. It's yes. sort of how I would describe it. Um, and 
just kind of a short synopsis is that it's about a small town in North Dakota that gets hit by a meteor in the middle of winter, which infects the hibernating prairie dogs with alien worms. And then a uh, recent high school graduate Raylene and her best friend Nate have to basically save the town from these this alien infestation while also dealing with their own personal problems and fighting a doomsday cult. There's so much going on in this book. And and any one element is perfect. It's like alien meteor. Yes, of course. Uh, infected prairie dogs that are now evil. Oh, sure, let's go for it. There's a tiger king in here. <laughs> like, just randomly. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I have to tell you, secret. Okay, there is a tiger in this book and it is actually based on someone from my hometown. There was a... <laughs> There was a lady who owned a tiger and would drive around with the tiger in the back of her truck. So. Oh my gosh. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I believe you because uh, Turpentine Creek up, up in um, closer to Eureka Springs here in Arkansas is like a, a, a big cat um, refuge. And, oh. and basically they, they know all of these people who just like, randomly have a tiger that they carry around in a in a trailer behind their car and and they rescue those those tigers and you know try to rehabilitate them into a, a safe space just out here in Arkansas they have just a big huge plot of land and they're just like go be a tiger <laughs> that's awesome those tigers deserve to be tigers I don't know why anyone ever thought it was a good idea to have a tiger as a pet that's ridiculous <laughs> I know it's 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 like <laughs> you couldn't just be content with a house cat or like a dog. Right, you, know, you have to go just absolutely crazy. Rich people, you know. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. But yeah, there are so many elements of this book that I think are just absolutely delightful, and any single one of them I would have been content with. Like that was a great little inclusion, but you stack them all on top of each other, and I was just giggling through the entire book. It's so funny. Yay, that was my hopes, so I'm so glad. <laughs> so, are you from North Dakota originally, or how did you get to know the lay of the land for this uh, demise North North Dakota, where the book takes place? I am, yeah. Demise is not a real town, but it's inspired by real places. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in North Dakota, and I was there through college. So, and I always wanted to write a book that took place there and really captured the kind of brutal North Dakota winter vibe. And I think that is a good uh, setting for horror. So that was kind of my goal. Um, so hopefully you felt it, like maybe you were really there. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I loved it. Um, aside from just being a great little, what I, I feel like is a very wintry read because it takes place in North Dakota and there's a lot of snow and it, you know, it's it's set around Christmas time. Um, but I also felt like I definitely could recognize the North Dakota elements, the the kind of Fargo elements, especially in some of the dialogue, which was very, very Good. North Dakota. I'm so glad. Yeah, that you can't really take. I still have that bit of North Dakota in me, even though I've been gone for like 20 years from my hometown. Um, you'll even hear my accent start to come out the more I talk about it. So yeah, I'm glad you got that hint of Fargo. That was, I was hoping that you would. 
yeah it, it was great it um the dialogue I, I think is is very unique and i think contributes to the again the kind of unique voice that this book has which is also steeped in the 90s so I wanted to pose this question to you because it seems like we're in a little bit of a cultural moment where we continue to kind of draw back on the media of previous decades to kind of inform some of our, our, you know, current media, our current culture, whether it be a comment on that particular decade or just kind of reflecting back on a nostalgic time period to set our stories in. So, you know, first why the 90s? Why set this book in 1997 with all of its very specific references? So first off, it could be because I'm lazy. <laughs> I'm, actually, <laughs> I'm actually the same age roughly as the main character. So that was a super easy time period for me to pick. But also, um, you know, when you talk about nostalgia, there's a reason I picked that, right? When I think back to the 90s and living during that time, I get that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling you get from being nostalgic and thinking about your childhood and your formative years um, and all those things that kind of become very symbolic in your mind. You know, the songs and the food and the places you went, you know, all these things, I think, grow a little larger in your memories. Um, and it just makes it kind of fun to write about and try to capture what it was like to live then. Um, and the nice part about the eighties and the nineties, I enjoy kind of writing nostalgia in both those time periods. Cause those really were my formative years from like childhood to up through college is that there, there is a fun, you know, to it. There's like a bubble gum neon kind of silliness to the eighties and nineties which makes it really fun to write about and capture. But there's also an undercurrent of like terribleness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's like Iran-Contra and, you know, the AIDS crisis and all these other mm -hmm. things, right? So I think it's really interesting to write about because um, you have this top layer of something shiny and neon and pretty and fun but lurking beneath it is like the real rot right which mm. is probably true of every time period and how we kind of pose things in our memories but I think it can make it interesting to write about because you can hide things in there within all the fun yeah so what are some of the things that you've kind of hidden as the sinister layer in this book um to, you know, th that kind of sits underneath this Lisa Frank neon, you know, exterior? Um, I think a couple things. So first off, uh, part of where, part of the setting is based on not just where I grew up in North Dakota, but specifically where I grew up in a trailer park in North Dakota, that mm -hmm. Raylene's home is very much like my home. Mm -hmm. And I promise this is not a Mary Sue. This is not like based on me completely, but there are elements. Um, but, you know, growing up poor mm. and kind of how all, you know, my friends maybe had the things that I wanted, you know, the jeans and the cool clothes and oh, yeah. all these things that I couldn't afford. Right. So there was that, the kind of nine eighties and nineties consumerism and capitalism. Oh, yeah. And what it's like to live in that world when you don't have the money, I think is one element. 
Also, um, there's a bunch of references to the Air Force Base. There was an Air Force Base near where I lived, and there is one in the book as well. And um, one of the references I make is to them um, shutting down like the missile program and um, warheads and all of that kind of stuff. So it's that undercurrent of, of like militarism and war and what could happen at a moment's notice when you live in a small town that's near, near a military base. Mm. Um, so those are just a couple examples, but I tried to pepper in those things um, that are sort of an undercurrent under that shiny layer. Oh, one more thing that I um, also didn't mention was um, this took place in the book around the same time as the Heaven's Gate cult, which I mentioned in the book. So that's yes. another good example of kind of the um, something I remember seeing um, at the time. Like I literally remember seeing the news footage uh, as a teenager of those people being found uh, after they basically committed mass suicide because they thought the aliens were coming behind this comet. Yeah. Um, so it's that those sort of things that are hidden beneath the surface and very disturbing things. Yes. Um, even though everything, you know, looks so pop culture and bright. I think that's one of the things that I really loved about this book is I think that there seems to be this impulse in a lot of media where it's just like, just present kind of unironic nostalgia for something. And, and just like, it feels like it, it washes away a lot of the baggage that comes with a lot of that. And this book doesn't necessarily do that. You know, yeah, we have, you know, talking about weren't Skittles great? <laughs> but then, you know, there's a lot of this co very complicated kind of socioeconomic backdrop to this book that makes it feel that much more compelling as an actual place, you know, a kind of actual story set in an actual time and space, even though everything is obviously very made up. Yeah, I'm glad that you got that out of it. I mean, I think that's the thing with writing about nostalgia, writing with nostalgia is um, that I like to try to do is not just capture the fun parts, but try to also get at what's underneath because the just fun nostalgic parts is were not reality, right? There was way more to it. Um, so I think it's important to capture that if you're going to do nostalgia well. You bring up an idea that I want to dig into just a little bit, which is you changed your um, your preposition there, uh, like as you were talking about nostalgia, like writing with nostalgia versus something like writing about nostalgia or writing for nostalgia. And I think that this is a really interesting delineation and I kind of want to dig into it with you. You know, what what does it mean to write with nostalgia? versus what is writing like for nostalgia and and what are kind of the pitfalls of either one I think for me writing with nostalgia uh, I guess I would categorize it actually around a comment that was made early on by my editor at my publisher um, he said I want you to think about the 90s being a character in this book like so well developed that it's a character you know it's not just peppering in things 
but really weaving it through the actual DNA of the book. So I think that's the distinction for me of writing with nostalgia is really embedding it in the book and threading it all the way through. What would it feel like a day-to-day -day experience being someone living in that time, not just putting it on the surface, um, which can be fun too. I mean, I think there are times when that works. For example, with shorter works, it's harder. To, you know, if you're going to write a short story that takes place in a certain time period, it's much harder to fully embed that in the DNA. And you might only get away with a few references, which I think works fine. Um, but it's a little different when you can do it in a longer work and easier, I think, to really like thread it all the way through. Yeah, I, th I think a lot about my relationship to nostalgia um, and and how much of how much of our cultural imp impulse for nostalgia seems to be rooted in kind of a negative perception of our current, like our current moment. Um, you know, even politically, we have politicians who are coming out and trying to evoke this weird ethereal previous age that was so much better for our country than the current moment where gas prices are astro astronomical and your food budget has tripled, you know? And I think about what, what is the purpose that nostalgia is serving to us in that sense? And and what is the danger there? Um, is nostalgia really an impulse for good? And and if it is, how do we highlight the good in nostalgia through our media? And how do we confront the bad in nostalgia? Yeah, I mean, I, I was actually just thinking about this as well. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this meme going around, but to your point of politicians kind of glamorizing earlier times. There's this picture going around of these beautiful girls in the 70s. It's three girls in a photo. And someone said, a politician had said, why don't we have women like this anymore? Look how natural and beautiful these women are. And it was the Manson girls. Like they didn't, they didn't realize this was a picture of the Manson girls, which is kind of the perfect metaphor for exactly what you're saying, right? You look back at something and see it on the surface and say, oh, look how lovely this was. You know, look how wonderful women were in the fifties and how nicely done up they were and how beautiful and how well they kept their homes. And, um, but the truth of the matter is, you know, that was kind of a form of oppression and women weren't able to express themselves fully during that time or have autonomy. Um, so that's the danger of nostalgia, I think, is not recognizing there are bad parts too. Um, not that there aren't also good parts we can take from. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to kind of find the silver lining or like within yourself have good memories, right? We all do that. I think that's why we like nostalgia psychologically is it just makes us feel good. It makes us feel happy. Even when I think about looking back to my childhood, um, I actually grew up in a home with domestic violence, um, mm -hmm. which is some of the themes that go through this book as well and just get mentioned very briefly. Um, but I honestly, in my memory, I don't have a lot of memories of that because I have chosen in my mind to kind of focus on the good parts, right? Um, and remember the happier times and have that be sort of what I have held on to as a person to make me who I am. Um, and so that can be good. It can be good to like 
embrace the happy memories and be nostalgic in a good way. But you still, I think, always have to acknowledge that other part is there and just be like honest and truthful about it. Because if you're not, it can be kind of dangerous. And I think that's kind of what happens when it gets politicized. So, mm. Yeah, I, I think too about, you know, the commodification of, of nostalgia and, and what that can be shipped with. You know, um, when we are, you know, just kind of given something that preys, I think, on what really what should be our best impulses, right? Um, you know, a, a, man, I loved this particular thing when I was younger. Wouldn't it be great to feel that passion again, right? But but then that's that's kind of weaponized against us and sometimes saddled with some really uncomfortable stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, kind of mocked too, right? When you look at fandom, um, people like to kind of tease adults or look down on adults that maybe embrace things they liked when they were younger, um, which is really too bad. Shouldn't we all be able to just like what we like and remember happier times and enjoy something just because it makes us feel good? Um, you know, as long as we're not totally ignoring the bad parts that are problematic, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, and as adults, we have plenty of like real stuff to deal with every single day. Um, most of us need a little bit of escapism. I like that, that idea of like, we need a little bit of escapism. I've been thinking a lot about frostbite and why I love this book so much because my feelings are very complex. Obviously, not everything in this book is super happy, right? Um, it's covered in this sheen of a lot of humor, but there's there's also some heavy stuff in there too. And I, I think about like its place with horror, its place with science fiction, its place with with comedy, and and really, you know, like what is even the function of a book? What is it that we should be getting out of a book? Should a book always be a pleasurable experience? Should it should it be a challenging experience? You know, like what really is the function? And and and, and is it okay for us to also just look at something and just love it? You know, just like just have fun with it. Um, and, and enjoy it and, and allow it to, you know, just kind of work on us a little bit. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and I think it sort of depends on the person, right? People are more or less kind of capable or, or want to, or like to really look head on at very scary and disturbing things, right? I am not personally a fan of extreme horror. It's not my thing, but there are people who love it and good for them. They should they should be able to consume horror however they want to consume it. But I personally like, and how I write as well, is to sort of hide it a little bit, right? Um, to kind of, um, one of my friends said something really nice to me that I'll always remember. Um, she said, my writing is like poisoned hot chocolate. <laughs> and I was like, I am writing that down on a sticky note because I've never received a nicer compliment. Um, and so that's how I try to write is to be sweet and fun and nice and lovely, um, but also have a little bit of that poison running through because that's reality, right? Nothing is ever 100% fun and sweet. Um, so I'm glad that you kind of got that um, because that's what I was going for. But, but again, I think um, different people have different tolerances. 
you know, sure. as far as what you like to read or watch. Um, but I kind of like, I like that kind of thing where I can have fun with it and then go, oh, wait, you tricked me. <laughs> yeah. you, okay. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> I, there. There was definitely a point in this book while reading to compare it to another like really popular uh bit of of pop fiction right now the barbie movie um where barbie's like she's doing her dance and she's like y'all ever think about death and and, and that's perfect yes that's the impulse i feel like that was frostbite to a t for me it was like here's all of this just genuinely delightful stuff and then it's like but have you thought about death enough in this book (laughs) but what if what if your mom dies Right. And you're like, wait, uh, no, I don't want to think about that. It's so tragic. <laughs> but but also, uh, man, everything leading up to that particular scene is so funny. I don't, I really don't want to spoil this book, but I also just want to talk about all of my favorite parts. One of which is, is a fight with a whole bunch of rodents in a movie theater. In a, it's, it's just so funny. Yeah. I mean, it turns out like prairie dogs can be vicious in in packs okay <laughs> maybe small but they've got sharp teeth <laughs> i i i want to hear your hot takes about prairie dogs because i i have speaking of nostalgia i have a lot of nostalgia from my own childhood um growing up in in pueblo west colorado and i have some story dog or some story dog i have some prairie dog stories that you know like these are kind of the moments that you look back on and you really think about it and it's quite dark, but it's also quite hilarious. So like, yeah, I, um, so that was another thing that is kind of based on where I grew up. We had a prairie dog colony. It was actually groundhogs. We have both groundhogs and prairie dogs in North Dakota for the book. I chose prairie dogs, but behind my house, there were groundhogs, which were very similar, um, in the field. And so I would listen to them chirping and they're so adorable and tiny and they poke their little heads out of their holes, like mere cats. Um, and they're really precious. Um, but also, you know, uh, one of my memories I've never been able to forget from childhood, and this isn't blamed on the prairie dogs, it's blamed on the people, which are, as we know, the real evil all along in pretty much everything. Um, when I was growing up, hockey is super popular where I'm from. And um, one of our rivals were the Minnesota Gophers. And so people in town would find dead prairie dogs. I hope they were already dead (laughs) and store them in the freezer for hockey season. And then at hockey games, bring them into the the arena in coolers and chuck them onto the ice. Now you can't get away with that nowadays, but, um, but isn't that like a funny way to have in my memories, these are my memories of prairie dogs. And so, um, maybe this was my, um, attempt at letting them get their revenge. (laughs) My, my stories are, uh, all of my father and his, his ongoing war with these prairie dogs. Um, we, we built a house um in the 90s in Pueblo West and and it was like our first like built house and my father always kind of saw the house as like a continuing project he really wanted he wanted a green lawn which 
is kind of absurd if you think about the fact that we were in Colorado and like green lawns just aren't it's not a thing on in in, in mountain country right <laughs> so he he wanted this he, he wanted this space he wanted this lawn it was like the thing that he wanted the most out of out of any project and we had prairie dogs all over our our property we had about two acres of land and they were they were everywhere and my father would war with them because they would ruin everything they'd you know create sinkholes they'd they'd invite snakes in with their dens and and they would tear up his lawn and they would eat his they would eat his grass seed and he just hated them so one morning um we we were like going to church right we were getting ready for church and everybody's getting dressed for church and there's my father with a rifle nestled out of his bedroom window like <laughs> like sniper style <laughs> <laughs> sniper style try to pick off these prairie dogs and, and my mom was like Paul, we gotta go. We gotta go to church. And he's like, "We're not going until I take care of this." <laughs> it was. Just... I first of all, I love that you were going to church after as well. Right. Yes. Just the perfect. <laughs> just a normal Sunday, right? This reminds me of. Um, I think I saw said groundhogs earlier when I met Gophers. But the reason I had that in my mind is because of Caddyshack. So yes. I'm thinking of your father as being the groundskeeper in Caddyshack, <laughs> trying to like that, destroy that is, this creature. <laughs> that is my father's energy when it came to, and in fact, I, I'm not, <laughs> I do not make this up. We were, we were just hacking golf balls one day out um, in, the, again, in the back of, of this house, we had two acres of land and nothing to do. Um, so my siblings and I were, we were just hacking golf balls out there and my dad spots another prairie dog and he's like, these, he, my dad doesn't swear, but he was like these mother effers. So he grabs the golf club from us. And then all of a sudden it becomes a contest of, can I hit that prairie dog with one of these golf balls? <laughs> And he spent a good 15 minutes in every golf ball he had trying to hit these damn, these damn prairie dogs. <laughs> I love it. This visual is perfection. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it was, again, one of my favorite memories that is also just steeped in this murderous undercurrent, right? <laughs> See, this is how you laugh. And then you're like, wait. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes exactly um oh what a time what a time to be alive <laughs> goodness another aspect of this book of course is that it is kind of a coming of age story although i think that traditionally we think of a coming of age story as being you know something for children right like like a kind of turning into their adolescence or a prepubescent child you know going through their pubescence either like literally or symbolically but this is a coming of age tale that is really i think less about making that kind of a transition and kind of transitioning from a teenager into like kind of full adulthood trying to kind of transition through this stage of life to, to take more authority and autonomy um, over the self. 
so I kind of wanted to to hear from you a little bit about this coming of age story. Yeah, it is tough to categorize. You know, um, technically this book is YA, but it's kind of upper YA and really it's mm-hmm. appropriate for adults too. Um, you know, it's not about kids stuff necessarily, um, to your point. But I think it's all about really that transition from, you know, when I was thinking about it, kind of being in a world where people sort of tell you what to do, you go where you're told, you do what you're told, you're sort of, you don't have a lot of autonomy, but it's kind of easy, right? I think for myself personally about the transition from go, from being in college to actually like having a job and having to pay my bills um, and just make decisions and be responsible for the consequences of those decisions. That's the kind of coming of age this is, is that transition from like, you know, going through the motions and not having to stress too much about things to really being in real life. And it's kind of hard, you know, in the book, uh, Raylene is caring for her mother who has dementia, who has early onset Alzheimer's. And she has to kind of change some of her plans because of that. She can't, she wanted to go to college and now she can't. And I think all of us can identify with those kind of choices. And it doesn't necessarily even just happen at that age adults probably go through sort of a version of coming of age at multiple time periods in their lives right when you're like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden buying a house and you're like okay this is the largest bill I've ever had is this a mistake like (laughs) now I have no money what even what does home ownership even mean like you know, is capitalism worth it? Like, and then you're, you know, or when you're having kids, you're having a family or when your kids are out of the house now, like, who am I as, as a person, you know, I'm used to being a parent and now, you know, I don't, they don't need me every day anymore. What's my identity. Um, so I think it's those kind of coming of age stories actually happen at multiple times in our lives, but, young adult books are kind of known for capturing them. Mm. Um, Even though I don't know that it has to be that, right? You bring up this idea of like frontiers and and dealing with, you know, kind of the multiple frontiers of life. Uh, My father is like, like every cop in every movie, he's just weeks out of retirement. Um, (laughs) Weeks away from retirement. And he's having to deal with with this and he's having to deal with- you know, how do I re- retire effectively? Uh, my wife and I just bought a house just a couple years ago. So I'm <laughs> reeling from yeah. that. I think you're right. There are frontiers that we kind of cross over and don't necessarily know how to. And, you know, kind of fiction can kind of help us in at least, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? Metabolizing? Yeah, totally. The people, you know, maybe part of the, the reason why a lot of those stories are couched in young adult is because there's like a resilience there, right? When you're mm. that age, you have no choice but to just deal with whatever is thrown at you um, and keep moving forward. That's just your life. That's what you're expected to do. And I don't think it's a bad thing for us all to take a lesson from that, right? Resilience is a good thing. Um, it's just that maybe we don't talk about it as much or make it like a whole theme right it's not a a new frontier or a coming of age story it's maybe not as called out when the characters are older but it's really the same kind of story that we can learn from how fictional people deal with that 
and make the best of a situation. Now we're mostly hopefully not going to have to battle aliens, but <laughs> we are going to have to battle like aging parents and how that role reversal happens. And you know, all of that other stuff is going to happen to most of us. So right. Well, to your point too, I mean, I don't want to say that, that we're going to have to fight literal aliens, but I think there are still the metaphorical aliens in our lives, the things that are unknown to us, right, mm -hmm. um, that we have to come across and kind of grapple with. Do you see I, just like maybe genre literature in general as serving a kind of consistent purpose in helping us, again, kind of metabolize some of these transitions or some of these ideas? Um, do you feel like there's a certain genre that maybe pairs a little better as a wine to our experiences? Well, you know, I'm biased, but I would say horror for sure. You know, we, I think the horror fans and writers know we sometimes get a little bit of a bad rep, right? Um, we can be seen as a little more trashy than other genres. Um, but truly no one does it better when it comes to helping people in real life cope with um, real life horrors by reading about characters who are coping with imaginary horrors, right? Um, there, like there have been studies showing that reading horror, children reading horror actually helps them develop the mental skills and the fortitude to deal with mm -hmm. adversity. Um, so I absolutely think horror does that for people. You know, it can mm -hmm. be an escape, but it also is, something that shows you how to fight and um, develop that kind of resilience. Yeah. So pairing horror with something like sci-fi, I feel like that's pretty obvious uh, because like, you know, aliens exists. Um, and, and I feel like that franchise has, has really kind of shown, you know, proven to us that like horror matches really well with sci-fi. Uh, but what about comedy and, and horror comedy? You know, what was kind of the impulse to pull in these comedic elements to pair them with some of the darker stuff? Um, I think part of it is just my personality. I'm a very chipper person. I'm very <laughs> cheerful. Uh, that's just who I am. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't deal with things on a deeper level or think about stuff mm -hmm. that is kind of scary and disturbing. Um and so first off, it just represents me as a person. Um, sure, yeah. But also I think, you know, I have learned just from what I like to watch and read that it's how I like to get my horror oftentimes. Um, it just makes it more kind of palatable, right? Can't we have a good time? Like I want to have a good time, but also walk away remembering things and thinking about things later right? Like I recently rewatched um, Shaun of the Dead, which is one of my favorite comedy horror movies. Yeah. And I think that is like a perfect example of something that is so funny. It's easy to watch. Um, it's a good time. But when you think about it later, there are real themes there about mm. friendship and society and relationships um, and what's important. Um, so that's kind of what I like in comedy horror is like it's kind of the that stuff is hidden and you can have still have a good time consuming it so hit us hit us with a couple of recommendations for you know maybe some good comedy horror as we set set into spooky season 
Oh my gosh, this is a really tough one. I think um, I, so I've said Shaun of the Dead. I also really love Slither. That's okay. a great one. Um, and that one too has a lot about relationships and expectations and small town life. Um, and so that one is great. I also really love Ready or Not is great. Oh, yes. Samara Weaving is like my new favorite final girl. She's amazing. Um, <laughs> yes. But that one is great. And it and it also basically has a cult. Anytime there oh, is yeah. a cult, sign me up. Like I want cults. <laughs> I give me all the cults. I love them. <laughs> um yeah. So those are just a few. I could probably talk for like an hour about comedy horror recommendations, but <laughs> I might have you back on the show to do that. Um great. that would be that would be totally <laughs> delightful. Um it's one of my favorite pairings. I I just I really love because horror is already kind of stupid anyway. Um, I, I don't mean to cast any aspersions to anybody who loves horror. I clearly adore it, right? But it, I I don't know. I feel like in order for it to work, it has to be kind of stupid because it it always pushes us out into the extremes, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a, it, it's whatever emotion, but cranked a, a little bit further than the dial can go. And, yep. and I feel like that's horror's sweet spot. So it's already kind of absurdist anyway, uh, in a sense. And so when you just pay attention to that absurdity and call it out for its absurdness, um, I feel like like you've you've made it. You've made the horror comedy sandwich that I'm going to eat for forever. Well, and it's also like, as far as beats, it just works, right? I think mm-hmm. both scares and jokes both have a punchline right yeah they have like a buildup, and then it hits um so i think those things work really well together just from a structure standpoint right it's like that same kind of beat so it works great oh my gosh you you've just explained exactly why i love frostbite so much uh i feel like i feel like your setup punchlines are so good <laughs> and i yeah. Now, now that you say it, like I can see the craft there. Um, this is a great book. If I haven't made that clear to our listeners, this book is so much fun. I absolutely love it. I'm so glad. It was honestly really fun to write. I'm super proud of it. I'm super happy with it. But also as a writer, like it's it's pretty great when something is fun to do, right? Sometimes writing can be a slog. Um, so there, you know, it's probably few and far between those moments when you're just truly joyful in your craft, yeah. uh, which is something you want to hold on to when you get it. How do you maintain the joy? I, I know this isn't a question that I prepared for you, but you know, um, how, how do you, how do you find it and how do you keep it? Well, first off, you know, for me, I think I had to get, I've been through a journey of sort of accepting who I am as a writer. I'm not a literary writer. I will never be featured as a great literary writer. Um, there was probably a time when I wanted that, when I, you know, thought that would be pretty nice. I don't have an MFA. I don't have like an official educating in, education in writing. And that can at times make you feel a little less than other writers. Mm-hmm. So it's been a little bit of a journey for me to come around to saying, you know what? I don't care. Like, I think there's absolute value in that. Um, and there's plenty of literary work I love, but me as a writer, I am genre. I write like you're watching a movie. 
I want it to be yeah. fun and action packed and you see it in your mind. Um, I do young adult, which often gets some crap <laughs> as being less than, you know, mm. horror comedy. Like those are all just things I, I like to do. And I've gotten to the point where I accept that that's kind of who I am as a writer. So I think that's number one is just me kind of getting to the point of just being okay with writing what I like um, mm. and, and having a good time with it and not apologizing for it just because it may not be for everyone or some people think it's a little silly or doesn't have as much merit. That's cool. Um, then my mm. stuff isn't for them, but there's people who are going to like it. I, I think that is a really great takeaway. Like your audience exists and people are going to get it. The The ones who get it are going to get it. Um, and, and write to those people, you know, write for, write for that audience because that's the audience that, that needs your story. Right. Totally. Well, where can people find more about your upcoming projects and, uh, you know, other bits of your work? So you can go to my website, which is angelasylvain.com and that's spelled S-Y-L-V-A-I-N-E. Um, I have links to all my previous short works out there as well as Frostbite. I have links to all my social media. You can find me on Instagram and I'm still going to call it Twitter because screw that X bullshit um, and uh, threads and TikTok and blue sky, wherever there's social media, you can find me um, under my name. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this discussion this morning. This has been an utter joy and frostbite is so joyous. I really cannot cannot overstate my love for this book. Re listener, if, if you're looking for a, a wintry read just just go for it frostbite i agree <laughs> and thank you so much for having me this conversation was totally fun i could do it for like another two hours um and i appreciate it so much i'm glad you enjoyed it <laughs>